Let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, our week has been filled with speech. We have been talking and others have been talking to us. We have had intentional conversations about any number of things. And we have just had words on in the background. But what we most desire right now, Father, is that you would speak. And that we would hear you. That the words that come from other places would be squeezed out. And the words that come from you would fill our hearing and fill our hearts. We live by your word. We feed upon your word. And your word is life. And your word is health and strength. And this morning, O oh Lord, we need life from your word and health and strength from your word. We need help from your word. Our path is hidden. Our way is dark. Unless the light of your word shines for our feet and gives us direction and vision. So help us to forget about what we think. Help us to forget about what the world thinks. Help us, O oh Lord, to give up on our own wisdom. And help us to hear what you say. And to receive it and believe it. And to gain life from it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the words you're going to hear almost every day nowadays, you're going to see it in social media, you're going to see it on Facebook posts, you're going to hear it talked about in news stories. It's ubiquitous, it's everywhere now, is the word justice. So many calls for justice, so many debates about what constitutes justice. There's so much wrangling about who deserves justice. This person who was hurt in some way, were, were they good people? And, and should they have been treated better because they were good people? Or were they really bad people? And even though that has nothing to do with why they were injured or hurt or killed, eh, are they less deserving of justice? Are our governments just? And the policies that are passed, there's great debates about that. Should, should we change our immigration policy? What should we do about health care? And running beneath all of those conversations very often for many of us are, are questions of justice. What's right to do? What should happen? What's the moral case beneath these things? And so we debate justice. It's interesting to me, though, that not a lot of that debate centers on God's people. The questions that are raised about injustice are often questions about the secular state, are questions about government power, are questions about this leader or that leader or this agency and that agency, but lost in the conversation, and those are worthy conversations, necessary, lost in the conversations is a basic question about how well are God's people doing? at being just? Does righteousness and justice and equity and fairness, does it characterize us? This is why I would ask you the question, which is God more concerned about, the capital or the church? How would you answer that? In God's word this morning in Isaiah chapter 1, I think Isaiah makes it very clear Yes, God does rule every capital, and he rules over every secular city. But God has a particular concern about the quality of the witness of his people. It's to his people that he sends his prophets primarily. And it's concerned for our integrity that God is most often roused. And that's, Jer that's Isaiah's burden. It's Jeremiah's burden, too. That's Isaiah's burden this morning in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 to 31. Look there with me. Again, if you're using the blue Bibles provided, you'll find it on page 567. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore, 
she who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desire. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. If you were summarizing this text in one kind of pregnant sentence, here's how you might summarize it, and it's the main point of the sermon. The people of God sometimes fall, but God lifts them when they fall. I guess two sentences. That's one sentence. It was going to be a run-on. That's one sentence. And the second sentence will be this. But we must not take God for granted. The people of God sometimes fall. That's point number one, verses 21 to 23. And God lifts his people when they fall. It's verses 24 to 26. But we must not take God for granted. Verses 27 to 31. Verses 21 and 26 might be divided into two halves that follow the same basic pattern. Each section begins with an announcement, verse 21 and verse 24. Isaiah makes an announcement about the state of Israel, verse 24. God makes an announcement about the state of his own heart and what he's going to do. Then each section continues with an analogy, an analogy to silver and and dross. You see that in verse 22 and 25. And then thirdly, each section describes the actions of the leaders of Israel at the time. So you get the announcement, you get the analogy, and you get the actions. And in verses 21 and 23, it's as if Israel is is falling down into a valley, into a pit of corruption. And in verses 24 to 26, it's as if God is pulling them out of that corruption into righteousness. That's kind of the, the motion that the text follows in those six verses. And the first thing we wish to see is, The people of God sometimes fall. You see it announced in verse 21. Isaiah makes reference to the faithful city. That's the same. Going back to chapter 1, verse 1, he's still addressing Judah and Jerusalem. Jerusalem is that that city. In verse 26, it's referred to as Zion. Verse 27, excuse me. Jerusalem is the capital city of of the southern kingdom of Judah and and of all Israel. And as the capital, it represents the heart of the nation. And so when people think about the United States, they think about the capital city of Washington, D.C., and kind of what goes on in Washington is thought to go on or to at least affect what goes on in the rest of the country. Now notice in verse 21, once the city was known as faithful, it was loyal to God, like a, like a faithful wife or a faithful husband to their spouse. Jerusalem and the nation once honored God as their God and worshipped him in a pleasing way. At that time, it was also, noticed full of justice. That means the people of the city did right for everyone concerned. Isaiah says, in fact, that, they, that righteousness lodged in her. It was the home of righteousness. That's where righteousness lived. If you ever need to be treated justly according to God's word, then the place you wanted to be was among God's people. You wanted to be in Jerusalem. You wanted to be in that Zion where righteousness lived. 
But Jerusalem has fallen hard. See, two shocking words they are used to describe her reputation now. She has become a whore. And she is now home to murderers. And those two words are, can be taken both literally and, and spiritually. And those things kind of go together. The, the spiritual adultery, the spiritual unchasteness of Israel, that's what God calls it, for example, in Ezekiel 3 and, and Jeremiah 16. This, this chasing after other gods spiritually was often tied up together with, with, with cults of, of prostitution. It was also often tied up together with, oh man, just gruesome things like offering their children in sacrifice to false gods. And so God is looking at his people and he's saying, you once were faithful and righteous and just, but now you have become loose. Now you have become murderers. You are characterized now by, by idolatry and, and you're characterized by, by murder and the loss of life and the theft of life. See, the breakdown of moral ideas like righteousness and justice leads to the breakdown of social relationships. And so things like murder take place. And when a people break the first table of the law, you should have the Lord your God and worship him only, it follows almost automatically that they will break the second table of the law, love for neighbor. Alec Martyr put it this way, social values cannot be created and maintained without spiritual commitment. And that's what's happening with Israel here. And to our ears, the words murderer and the word whore, they shock our senses today, don't we? we read that and go, whoa, that's in, the, that's in the Bible? These are not polite words. We, we reserve these kinds of words for the very worst circumstances. But you know, here's the interesting thing about us today. Today, we are more offended and shocked at the words than we are the reality. People will get more upset that they were called whores than they are about being whores. People will be more upset that you call them a racist than they are about acting like a racist. Pick your, pick your issues, sexism, misogyny, I mean, all kinds of issues. You tell people that's what you're doing, that's what you're acting like. They're more offended that you use the word than they are about the possibility that that's actually what's happening in their hearts. And I suspect that was true of Israel. See, beloved, we've made ourselves sensitive to language in a way that makes us insensitive to character and behavior. These impolite words reveal ugly realities. God's people can and do fall hard into things that repulse and offend God. But God who uses words perfectly, he calls things the way that he sees them, the way they really are in his holy sight. And here the prophet Isaiah announces the sad state to which God's people have fallen, all of them. And God moves on to use an analogy to describe this fall in verse 22. There he says uh, in Isaiah 1, verse 22, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Silver and wine, you know, those are symbols of the good life, aren't they? Silver, a precious metal of, of value. Wine, sort of symbolizing riches and abundance and, and celebration. And these are folks who now, their silver, their lives, their souls have become mixed with dross. Even the, the dross, as far as they are, are sort of concerned, they see even the dross, the impure metals in the silver as shining like silver. And their wine has been, has been watered down. So, so, so in, their, in, their, in their lives, in their souls, are these, are these pollutants and these dilutants. They're polluted by the dross of sin and idolatry, and their witness is diluted. It is weakened like water into wine. And here's the thing, beloved, humanly speaking, once you pour water into wine, you can't separate them again. The strength, the potency, the taste of the wine is forever ruined. And so it is in this scene with God's people. They have become weaker, less holy, less pure. And it's not easy to get those things out. And the corruption is widespread. 
From the top to the bottom. So we see here the actions of their leaders in verse 23. The princes there refer to Zion's rulers. Verse 26 refers to judges and, and counselors. Or excuse me, verse 27, I think it is. For 26, refers to their, their counselors. This is a reference to the, the entire leadership class, from the, from the royal class to the, to the courts. It's a, it's a picture of corruption at the highest levels. Notice what Isaiah says. They are corrupt persons. They're rebels. They keep corrupt company, companions of thieves. They have corrupt practices. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. And they just love the hookup. That word there, runs after. They're eagerly seeking it. This is the, the animating drive of their lives. They are driven by selfish gain and driven by greed. And notice the consequence. When rulers are crooks and companions of thieves who can be bought with a bribe, then the vulnerable will be the most overlooked and the most oppressed. See, they're the fatherless and the widow, the ones who are meant to be protected by society, protected by God's people. Well, they, those are the ones who, who receive the disproportionate brunt of their corruption. I mean, think about it. When those who are in high estate play favors with each other, well, they watch each other's back. They bail each other out. But because they're in positions of power, they can do that at the expense of those who are not. And so no justice is brought to the fatherless. No justice, no mercy, no relief is brought to the widow. The poor guy, the little guy, the marginalized guy keeps catching it. And so what we see here in these first three verses is a picture of a, of a complete and utter fall socially, economically, spiritually. It's tempting to apply verse 23 to leaders in secular government. Indeed, we can see these issues in governments around the world, including the United States. It seems the entire political process is built on big money interests and trading favors between the powerful and the wealthy. Why, again, a little guy gets caught holding the bag. I can understand why we want to draw that line from verses 21 to 23 to the White House, to Congress, to D.C. City Council. But keep in mind, Isaiah 1 is written about God's people, not the secular state. The princes and the judges and the kings of the Old Testament are often called in places like Ezekiel 33 and 34, the shepherds of God's people. That means if we want to draw a line from this text to our day, we have to draw the line from Israel to the church and from the princes to the pastors. The concern here is for God's people and the justice of God's people. And so we, beloved, have to ask ourselves some questions. Here are three to maybe consider later this afternoon. Number one, has the church fallen into any kind of idolatry in God's eyes? Has the church fallen into idolatry? Number two, has the church accepted pollutants and, and watered-down morality before God? Have we become so much wine with water mixed in or so much silver with dross? And number three, have Christian leaders sought their own gain while failing to bring justice to the weak among God's people? How's the church doing, beloved? Now, the main thing to grasp, I think, in these three verses is a sentence that I've repeated a couple of times, and that is God's people can fall and fall hard. So, beloved, we must not be fooled into thinking that because we are the New Testament church and we have a, a new covenant, then, then we are somehow incapable of falling or we are different kinds of people than the people of Israel. Yes, we have a better covenant, uh, um, according to Hebrews. And we have a better covenant built on better promises. And this better covenant built on better promises has, yes, a better mediator, Jesus Christ. 
And, and Jesus, our great mediator, has made a better sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice on Calvary's cross for our sins. So yes, we have a better covenant with a better mediator, with better promises, built uh, on a better sacrifice, but we have that precisely because we are not better people. It's because Israel's infirmities are our infirmities. And it's because Israel couldn't succeed in their own righteousness, and we can't either, that we need a new relationship with God. A new covenant, a new mediator, a better sacrifice, which we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But acknowledging that, I think, should posture us to ask ourselves some hard questions about the state of our righteousness and the state of justice among God's people. How are we doing, beloved? We must watch our lives and our doctrine closely. Isn't that what Paul tells us in the pastorals? We must inspect our lives as a church for the things that would pollute our worship and our faithfulness to Christ. What dross corrupts our silver? What water weakens our wine? Do we even think about such things? Or are we coasting, imagining that you may coast your way upward to heaven? Oh, the kingdom of heaven is taken by force, beloved. We must press into it. And we don't do that unconsciously. We do that inspecting ourselves, testing ourselves to see whether we're in the faith and working out our salvation in fear and trembling. God's people can fall. What's the reputation of the church in the world? Are we known for righteousness and justice and faithfulness and love? Are we known for self-interest and greed? But the good news is in verses 24 to 26. When God's people fall, God very often will, will lift them up. You see that second announcement there in verse 24. Uh, th this announcement comes, notice there, from the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. The title Lord of Hosts could be translated the, the, Lords of the, the Lord of the Armies of Heaven. The Mighty One of Israel points to God's strength and power that he uses on behalf of his chosen people. So Isaiah introduced God to us in this verse in terms of his military power. God comes on the scene dressed for war. The war is between God and his people, though. It's a war for God's people, but it's also between God's people. It's critical that we remember that sometimes God will fight against his people in order to fight for his people. He will not long let us wander off into unrighteousness without correction, without reproof, without rebuke, without coming against us. And, and the Lord declares in verse 24, ah, he's, he's groaning there. This is, there's a grief there. And he says, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. And again, as, as Bible people, we're, we're accustomed to God speaking that way about People who are not his people. Here he's speaking of his people. The people's sin has become a great burden to God. God groans. He, he wants relief. He's, he's had enough. In their idolatry, they have become what God calls here enemies or foes. And in those frightening words, God intends to avenge himself. And we might expect that a holy God with all power stirred in a holy vengeance would destroy everything he judges. And that's when we get the surprise of verse 25. Instead of destroying his people, God plans to restore them. Notice what he says there. I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye, and remove all your alloy. Turn my hand against you symbolizes God's judgment against his people. His, his hand of power will, will strike them. His strength will come against them. And according to Isaiah's prophecy in biblical history, this happens when Assyria and Babylon finally conquer uh, Israel. But notice something. Their years of defeat and exile will be turned into a furnace. That's the idea with smelting there. There's a, there's a furnace heated to great temperatures with the, with the purpose of purifying silver. 
You want to purify silver, you want to get rid of the pollutants, you want to purify gold, you want to get rid of the pollutants, you put it in a furnace and you smelt out the alloy. You remove the impure part so that all that's left is the silver and the gold. God doesn't waste his judgment of his people. At the same time that he's being holy in his anger, he is also being merciful in his restoration. Judgment becomes the means for purification, for for cleaning his people in a way that they cannot clean themselves. Notice, he will smelt or burn away all their dross as with lies. Like he said, I'm going to wash you with detergent. I'm going to date myself a little bit, but some of y'all remember that commercial about Calgon taking it away. This is better than Calgon. This is better than any detergent. This is better than Tide. This is, this is what, I don't know what you use, the off-brand, whatever it is. It's better than what you're using at home. God says, I'm going to bring the heat. And by that heat, I'm going to burn away the dross. I'm going to remove the impurity. All their alloy, all the worthless metal taken out. That's his ultimate goal to purify his people. And this God who speaks here in Isaiah is the same God that we have to deal with as the church. And so we read things like Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews 12 verse 6, the Bible says there, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the writer of Hebrews could say it so plainly as to say, listen, if you're in sin, if, if the church is carried away in sin and God doesn't chastise him, you're not really God's sons. Your illegitimate children. And he goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, these words, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's what your spankings are about. That's what my whoopings are about. That's what God's conviction in our lives is about. That's, that's what seems to us when we seem like the Lord is being hard to us and correcting us and maybe even punishing us. Beloved, it's about his conforming us to his holiness, conforming us to his righteousness, removing the impurity that we might be the the preciously pure people that he has purchased with the blood of his son. See, for God, relief and vengeance for his people looks like restoration and purification. There may be some fire to go through, but we will be cleaner on the other side. But he's not done here. Notice he comes in verse 26 to the action of the leaders again. God says he will also restore the leaders of Zion. The Lord will make them like they were before the fall when they were the the faithful city. The leaders will, in this future time, will bring justice to the people and will rule in righteousness. And notice the result. The result will be the return of the people's reputation as the people of God. You shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And here's the good news. With God, there's a way back to righteousness. What the people destroyed, God restores. The people fall hard, but God lifts high. In verses 25 to 26, really teaches why we should not reject being called whores by God. That's an impolite word. More scandalous than the word is the reality of our spiritual adultery. But more scandalous than the reality of our spiritual adultery is God continuing to love us. Who can read that great book of Hosea and not see a picture of that? of God keeping his covenant of love with a people who are chasing after other lovers? Who can read Jeremiah 16 and not see there at the end of that long, uh, brutal description of Israel's whoredom spiritually, God saying, I will make atonement for you and make covenant with you. The good news is God loves whores. The good news is in all of our wanderings and all of our spiritual adultery and all of our unchasteness and all of the impolite things that we would, refer, we would rather not speak of in public, in polite audiences, God sees and God loves us anyway. God sees and God really is repulsed by our sin, 
but not by us if we're his people. He's not turned away from us in in some final sense, but he is so committed to us like a spouse who's been cheated on by their husband or their wife. He recommits himself to the covenant and he recommits himself to restoring what has been broken. Jeremy, when you go to Northeast D.C., tell the people God loves whores. That will be good news. That will be good news. Tell the people that God loves those who have, who, have, who have wasted themselves on wine. Tell the people that God loves those who have broken themselves in this world in sin, and he has demonstrated his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were out chasing after other gods, whether they're the gods of our appetite or the gods of money or the gods of power and influence or the gods of education, while we were chasing those things that were not gods and building altars to them with our lives, God was coming for us. God was seeking us out. God was planning to win us to himself, to conquer our rebellion by his love, to to melt our stony hearts by his grace, to subdue our rebellion by loving us unto life. Oh, it's bad news to be called a whore by God, but it's better news to see that he loves us in Christ. Tell the people, Jeremy. ARC, let's tell the people. That there is a remedy for our sin. However bad, however unspeakable, there is a Savior who washes by his blood and removes the stain of sin. And church, notice here in verses 24 to 26 in this restoration, God is concerned that his Old Testament church, Israel, be righteous and just. He doesn't restore them to himself without restoring them to this morality of righteousness and justice. And what's being said here of, in the Old Testament, of Old Covenant people, it, it applies to his New Covenant people, the, the church. So when God says in Isaiah 1, verses 16 and 17, cease to do evil, learn to do good, correct oppression, and so on, he's not just talking some ancient word to an ancient people who are no longer here. This was written down for us. For our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. So the church should have the positive reputation spoken of in verses 21 and 26. We should be full of justice. It should be said of us that righteousness lodges in us. We should be regarded as the faithful city, the the righteous city. And if that's to be our reputation, then it means this justice worked begins inside the church before it could ever take place effectively in the secular city. The church has to get its own house in order, even as we're thinking about challenging Pharaoh about his house. Some of y'all know this old song, sweep around your own front door before you sweep around somebody else's. This text calls us to sweep around our front door. And beloved, there is no hope of justice for the secular city if there is no justice in the sacred city. God sends Assyria and Babylon to judge Israel. You know, there's no place in this Bible, in this prophecy, does God command Israel to fix those pagan nations. He says to Israel, physician, heal thyself. Cure yourself of this spiritual wound. Justice must be done among us, beloved. If there is ever any hope of it being done among those who do not know God. And if justice can only be done in one place, in one city, it has to be done in the church. There's no way for us to have a consistent witness before God and before the world if all we do is give lip service to the gospel but we don't give life service to justice and righteousness. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. Now, beloved, I want to encourage those who look at the church and your answer to the question of whether or not the church is just and doing well, your answer is negative. 
And I will understand how we can look at ourselves and how we can look at the church and we can look at quarters of the church and feel like, man, no, we, we're, we're losing this and, and we're not where we're supposed to be and, and, and some disheartening can, can set in. If we're not careful, we'll be tempted to hopelessness. But before we give in to that, it's important that we remember that we're not to focus only on old Zion, the old Jerusalem, and we're not to focus merely on the, the current church in its warfare against the world, but we have to turn our eyes to the new Jerusalem, the coming city that comes from God. See, this church and, 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 and Israel were, were pointers to that celestial city, that, that final city that is our final home. And so you can write these verses down, or you can flip there with me, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. There, the New Testament apostle John is given a vision of, of the city to come. He's given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what he writes. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the city that we're looking forward to. Man is not its builder. Its foundations cannot be shaken. And hear now how Peter describes that, that city in 2 Peter 3, 11 to 13. He says, since these, all these things, the, the current world, the current heavens and the earth, are to be dissolved, they're going to be melted in fervent heat, he says. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our home. It's looking to that home and looking to that day that we are able to be sustained and given fuel for working on this day and this home and this church and this life. We can pursue righteousness and justice with hope that there is coming a day where all of our imperfect pursuits will be purified and be perfected. The church is battered and bruised now. And we do sometimes fall hard. But far better to be in the church struggling and then purified than to be in the world apart from Christ, struggling and finally judged. Beloved, if you're a Christian, your home is that new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells, where there's no murder, but only life, where there's no sickness or dying or crying, but the joy of the Lord. How high will Christ lift us? Well, not merely out of our sins. He will lift us to that perfect home of righteousness. Which brings us to our final point. God's people fall and God lifts them. But we must not take our relationship with God for granted. That's what we see in verses 27 to 31. If we were to stop at verse 26, we might assume that Israel, all of Israel, would be restored. We might even go on to think that while God did not like what Israel was doing, in the end, you know, he kind of got over it. He wasn't too put out by it. We might think Israel was always safe, that this was kind of a, an idle threat. But beloved, that kind of thinking is not faith. It is presumption. And it is foolish. It is taking God for granted. Verses 27 and 31 tells us of two types of people in Israel. In fact, these are the two types of people that are around today. First of all, he tells us about the true Zion. That's what we see in verse 27. 
Zion there is not a reference to the entire city or all the people of Israel. Zion is further defined by the second part of the verse as those who, who in her who repent. The true Zion of God, whether we're talking about Old Testament Israel in Isaiah 1 or the New Testament church, the true Zion of God are those who hear God's word calling them and they turn back to God. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a complete change of mind and change of life where we were going and seeking and doing sin, but now we have turned and we are seeking and obeying and serving God. So you can always spot God's people in a crowd of, of sinners. God's people are the ones turning around back to God in confession and seeking forgiveness. Repentant Zion, notice, will be redeemed. They will be purchased back. They were sold as slaves of sin, but now because of God's grace and mercy, they will, they will be purchased back as, as servants of God. They, they will go from the outhouse of sin into the, into the, into the, into the, the palace of God as, as worshipers. They'll, notice they'll be redeemed by justice. They'll be redeemed by righteousness. Those are not two different things, but, but two words kind of giving us the same idea. Both justice and righteousness involve not only living personally lives of integrity and uprightness, but doing that also collectively and publicly. These are covenantal ideas. These are responsibilities God lays upon all his people. They will be redeemed. And their justice and their righteousness will be reflected in that redemption. Ultimately, Israel would fail that standard. They could not live up to God's word. Just as we can't live up to all God requires in terms of justice and righteousness. But God's plan was to send someone who would be righteousness for them. Who would satisfy justice for them. God knew from before the world began that we would need a representative to stand in our place. Even in Isaiah, he begins to speak of that someone who would come. So in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11, Isaiah writes these words, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, this one who is to come is going to suffer. There's going to be anguish and grief in his soul, but he's going to see something. He's going to see a, a result that satisfies him. And then he says this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the one who is to come, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. If you know Isaiah 53, you know that Isaiah is prophesying the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking forward to that day when God's true righteous one, God's true son, will come and carry our iniquities, our sins, and give us his righteousness. He'll make that trade for us and stand in our place. He will suffer our judgment because of our sins, but he will also obey the Father perfectly so that we might be counted righteous by faith in God's sight. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, beloved, that's the entire message of Christianity in a nutshell. God sent his only son into the world to take our place. To take our place both in God's judgment to suffer when we should have suffered the final condemnation of God and to take our place in obeying God's word, to provide righteousness, complete, full righteousness before God so that we would be accepted as righteous through him. That's what the cross is about. He's dying on the cross to suffer our punishment, but he's also dying on the cross to fulfill the requirements of the law, that blood be shed, that there be a judgment for those who sin against God. That should have been us on the cross, beloved. And God's righteous one, Jesus Christ, has taken our place so that through repentance from sin and faith in him, everyone who believes will live forever with God in his righteousness and in his love. Now, beloved, to make it real clear, if you've not yet done that, you need to. To repent of your sin and to trust in this Jesus and to follow him as your God 
and your Savior. You need to do that because there is no other way for you to escape God's judgment. And you need to do that because God's judgment is forever. And it's horrible. And you need to do that because God has a better life for you and me than we have for ourselves. And you need to do that because the life that we dream about for ourselves, if it doesn't include Christ, it only leads to our destruction. We call things love that are not love. We call things fun that are anything but. We call things good that in God's sight are whoredom and murder and dirty. And if we don't hear God speaking to us, we will close ourselves into the chamber of our own thoughts and we will harden our hearts and pretty soon we will not hear God. And beloved, that's a terrible fate. Hear God now. Listen to him speak to you. He has no doubt spoken to you about how these things apply to you. Be a part of true Zion. Repent and believe. Because the other people spoken of in this text, notice there in verse 28, are described as rebels and sinners. Rebels and sinners. These are people who will not hear God. They are rebels. They harden their hearts against God. Notice there, these are those who forsake the Lord. So rather than repent of their sin and turn to God, they instead reject God and run away from him. And you know what? Oftentimes this rebellion, well, it it looks rather polite. People say things like this. I'm not ready to follow God yet. Or they say things like, God and I have an understanding. Or they say stuff like this. Let me finish my sin first and then I'll come to God when I'm older. Or slightly more clearly rebellious, they might even say, get away from me with all that God stuff. If God don't like this thing that I like, then I don't like God. Notice what happens to them. Verse 28. They are broken together. They are consumed. These are pictures of God's holy and righteous wrath against them for their continued sin. They are, if we're going to use the New Testament language or the common Christian language, they are sentenced to hell for refusing to repent. See, beloved, ultimately sin is not our greatest problem. Continuing in sin is our greatest problem. There's a cure for sin in the cross. But there is no medicine for refusing the cross of Christ and delighting in your sin. There's no escape from that. There's no no get-out-of-jail-free card for that. There's, there's There's no lawyer that can argue your case before God's judgment in any way that would make you less guilty of, of, of your sin or me of my sin. There's only one solution to sin, and that is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and our repenting and believing on him. And it's the only solution needed. Notice what happens with these rebels. Verses 29 to 31 give us these Old Testament images associated with, with sinners and who are headed toward judgment. They will be ashamed and blush, verse 29. Often the Old Testament uses idolatry and sort of compares it or links it with this idea of being ashamed before God. They, they may look good on the outside, verse, verse 30, like, like strong oak trees, or, or they may look like lush gardens, but on the inside, they are, they are dry and they're ready to be burned. And notice in verse 31, everything that they are, the, the strong, and everything that they do, their work, will actually lead to their burning. They become tender, they become firewood for the burning. You see those last lines there, those last words of verse 31? The fire, the judgment, cannot be quenched. 
there will be no relief for the sinner when God relieves his burden over sin. Beloved, see here clearly that when God lifts his people, he also sifts his people. He also makes a determination between the sheep and the goats. He, all, he separates those who are righteous from those who are wicked, those who are repentant from those who are unrepentant, those who love him from those who love their false gods and make false professions about him. This is why no one should dare take God for granted. He is not playing, beloved. And he is not a pushover. He is holy. And he is inflexible in his righteousness and his justice. And so as we conclude, let me ask just a few questions. Have you or I been taking God for granted? Here's how we can tell. When God points out our sin through his word or through his people, Having had our sins pointed out, do we repent of them and turn back to God? Or do we resent it being pointed out and continue in the sin? And do we do that, that refusing to repent and continuing in sin, all the while claiming to be God's people? That's how you know you're presuming upon God. God's people repent and God restores them. God's enemies harden themselves and God destroys them. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the false gods of your own making or will we serve the mighty one of Israel, the Lord of hosts, the God who restores and purifies? Choose God. Follow Jesus. Live forever in his love. Nothing else you have going on in life is worth missing that. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would overcome us with a spirit of soberness.